Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week, some of you may notice that the little graphics icon representing this episode of the Quillette podcast contains a split image. If you look closely, you'll see two pictures of the same woman, this week's guest, Mary O'Connor. On the left is an image of Mary from 1979, when she was a member of the U.S. National Women's Rowing Team. On the right is Mary, who's now a doctor, by the way, in 2023, 44 years later. Now, there's a reason why I included both photos, which is also tied to the theme of this week's podcast. Back in the 1970s, Mary was still fighting traditional sexism in U.S. collegiate sports. As she'll discuss with us, these were the days when women, even elite varsity athletes such as herself, often didn't even get their own dressing rooms. It was the era of Title IX, and Mary and her classmates were at the forefront of the fight for equality, a fight that they eventually thought they'd won. But now, fast forward to 2023, and female athletes are fighting another battle, one that Mary is also at the forefront of. This time, it's biological men who self-identify as trans women demanding entry to protected female spaces, including female sports. And as we saw with the Leah Thomas debacle in swimming, the Laurel Hubbard situation in weightlifting, and Natalie Ryan in disc golf, this can lead to awkward, divisive, and ultimately unfair situations, since male bodies, regardless of their pronouns, tend to be bigger, faster, and stronger than their female equivalents. Earlier this month, Mary was among a group of former American Olympic rowers who co-wrote a Newsweek article entitled U.S. Rowing Denies Fairness for Female Athletes, describing how the same transgender controversies we've witnessed in other sports are now coming to rowing. And Mary wants U.S. Rowing, the sport's governing body in the United States, to do the right thing before it's embarrassed into action by a Leah Thomas-type situation. Last week she spoke to me about her love of rowing and why the battle for fairness has always been important to her. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Miss O'Connor, I see here you you rowed on the 1980 U.S. Olympic rowing team. Is that correct? That's correct, Jonathan. Tell me what that experience was like. So 1980 was the year that the U.S. boycotted the Olympics that were being held in Moscow. So, of course, that was a huge disappointment to all of us on the 1980 team. And what I found particularly difficult was all of my international rowing friends that oftentimes their country followed the U.S. in the boycott, which I I fundamentally disagreed with. I mean, I wasn't saying that the Russians should have invaded Afghanistan, but I think that bringing politics into the Olympics to the extent that occurred with the boycott then set a standard that has compromised the Olympics ever since. So not only the U.S. boycotted, but then other countries followed. So I felt like, you know, my friends that were international rowers from other countries were basically losing this opportunity because of my president and that I didn't feel that was right. Uh, Well, right off the bat, we've established that you're no right-wing zealot, uh, because actually some people who do stand up for women's rights in the sporting area, sometimes they're attacked as being conservative fundamentalists or whatnot. How did you become involved in this controversy over gender and sex? 
first of all, I have been engaged in this space of fairness for women in sports since my university days. So when I was a first-year university student, I was at Yale, and I was part of the protest of the women's crew team where we marched into the athletic director's office, stripped, and had Title IX written on our bare chests and backs because there were no facilities <laughs> okay. at the Yale. Wait a sec. That, uh, that escalated quickly. Can you tell our listeners what Title IX is? So Title IX was legislation that was passed in the United States in 1972 that protected people from discrimination based on sex in education programs and activities. So it's very important to understand that this legislation specifically says sex. I shouldn't have to say this, but so sex is the biological indicator, which is written into every cell of our body. That's correct. As opposed to gender, which is this thing that you feel you have. And how you identify in society. Right. Okay. To add more complexity to that, the Biden administration is administratively trying to change the language of Title IX to say sex and gender. If I could just bring you back to the younger version of yourself who was there in that office, if somebody had said to you, hey, a couple of decades from now, we're going to be having a similar fight. You know, once again, you're going to be up against men getting advantage, but this time it won't be advantage expressed as the financing of male collegiate teams. (laughs) It will be biological males actually trying to get on your team. What would your response to that have been and and your teammates' response? Well, Jonathan, it was inconceivable. Back then, that was 1976. I mean, that thought would never have entered anyone's mind. It's a backhanded compliment in a way. It's like before Title IX, women's sports, the complaint was that it was treated as a backwater, it was underfunded, and they got crappy changing rooms and crappy facilities and no money. But now, at least people on the other side of the argument, they're paying women the compliment of trying to get on women's teams. I don't see this as a compliment. When I demonstrated, it was because we were being treated as second-class citizens. And there I was at one of the best universities in the world, Yale University, with plenty of resources. And all we heard were excuses as to why they couldn't build an addition onto the boathouse to give us a locker room so we could have proper facilities. So one sec, you were on the on the Yale rowing team and you guys didn't have a locker room? That's correct. That's why well, we... Well, where, where do you get dressed? We changed into our workout clothes on campus. We got on a bus. It was a 30-minute bus ride from the undergraduate campus to the boathouse, which was in Derby, Connecticut. We practiced. We got back on the bus, cold and wet and sweaty, and we waited for the men to shower, get all warm and dry and clean and smell good. And then we took the bus back to campus so we could get to the last cafeteria before dinner closed. So we went into the athletic director's office, as I said, and stripped. So we had Title IX written on our bare chests and back. And our captain read a statement that began with, these are the bodies that Yale is exploiting. The protest was written up in the student newspaper called the Yale Daily News that was picked up by the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune. And then that's when things happened. Because unfortunately, we had to embarrass the university into action. Putting aside the bizarre moment we're we're seeing with men invading women's sports, if you went to a university, would you now see roughly equal funding and treatment of female athletes? 
Jonathan, Title IX was groundbreaking and transformative for girls and women's sports in, in the United States. There's no question about it. Okay. Now, are things exactly equal? No. Are things dramatically better? Yes. In my rowing career, I have seen the transformation of regattas to equal representation for women and men in terms of competitive events. That was not the case when I was a young athlete. So when you were a young athlete, you'd show up at a regatta, would it be like the women's competition was sort of a sideshow to the men's competition? Well, the women were always kind of second build, but there were not as many events for women. We also raced a shorter course. So 1979, I stroked the United States national team women's eight to a bronze medal at the world championships. We raced a thousand meters. The men raced 2000 meters. (laughs) Why, you know, why were the women racing a thousand meters? You could say. There's no reason for that. Rowing evolved. The women now also race 2,000 meters, just like the men. Do you still row? Uh, Yeah, occasionally I get out on the river in a boat. I just don't have time for it. But I stay engaged in the sport through uh, one of my children who rows and through my friends. Rowing is a funny sport because I know former elite tennis players and basketball players and football players who've sort of let themselves go physically. When I meet former competitive rowers, they all seem to be the model of fitness, even into their senior years. Is that like just part of your profession is that you guys just never get fat? I don't know about that, Jonathan. But I think when you get to that level, and at least for me, exercise is my stress reduction, stress outlet. I mean, it just is, it's part of my life. And when I miss my workout, I can feel that I miss my workout. So but I don't work out to the same level of intensity that I used to when I was obviously training, you know, and an Olympian, but exercise is just an important part of my life. I believe it was in December, this is December 2022, when U.S. rowing set its new policy, I believe it's called the gender identity policy. Can you tell our listeners, what is U.S. rowing? What jurisdiction does it have? And what was the old policy? And what did this new gender identity policy dictate? So U.S. Rowing is the national governing body for the sport of rowing in the United States. If you think of the hierarchy as here's the International Olympic Committee responsible for the Olympics and sports at that international level. And then below the International Olympic Committee are the international federations. And World Rowing is the International Federation for Rowing. So now there's World Rowing. And then below World Rowing, are the national governing bodies in each country. So in the United States, that's U.S. rowing. Canada has a national governing body for rowing. In the U.K., it's British rowing, for example. Okay, so these national governing bodies are responsible for creating and setting policies that govern that sport in their country. There are also policies in rowing at the world rowing level, right, or the International Sports Federation level. We will oftentimes see national governing bodies adopting the policies that the international body is supporting. So where U.S. rowing is saying, we will adopt the policies supported by world rowing. So to get back to your question, in December of 2022, the U.S. Rowing Board of Directors adopted an update to their 2016 transgender policy. And I actually was completely unaware that this policy had been created in 2016. 
I became aware that they were talking about updating this policy. So I'm a member of a group called ICONS, which is the Independent Council on Women's Sports. And we formed a chapter, basically ICONS Rowing, and started pulling in uh, friends and rowers and people who are interested in this topic to say, we need to reach out to U.S. Rowing because the existing policy, which we then became knowledgeable about, was wrong. And the proposed updates, which I'll just cut to the chase and tell you the updates, were also wrong. So the new updated policy says that in the United States, at any level except for collegiate and elite, a boy or man can self-identify as a girl or a woman and compete in a girl's or women's category. With no restrictions. No restrictions, no testosterone suppression, nothing. I'm a dude. I want to race, say, like in some master's division, 50 plus. Yeah. People think I'm 35, but I'm 54. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I walk in and I say, I'd like to register for the female division. That's it. I, I'm competing in the female division. You'd have to declare at the beginning of the racing season that you are going to compete in the women's category. You would have to stay in the women's category for that half of the year. So U.S. Rowing set up two times in the fall. <laughs> so, the, so the restriction is I have to keep rowing as a woman? <laughs> like, <laughs> you have to keep competing. You have to keep competing as a woman for that half of the year. So I can't go back. So I can only switch genders twice a year. Twice okay. a year. So if I'm gender fluid and it's like a once a week thing, I'm, I'm out of luck. You're out of luck. In terms of the collegiate and elite levels, and that's where you're getting into the delegations that get selected for the world championships and the Olympics, what are the restrictions for those categories? So at the collegiate and elite level, U.S. rowing has adopted the policy of world rowing. And the world rowing policy is that a male, biological male, and I know that's redundant, but just to help the listeners track because the terminology can get confusing, right? So the biological male who identifies as a woman and wants to compete as a woman has to suppress their testosterone levels to five nanomoles per liter continuously over 12 months. And this individual has done that, then they can compete as a woman, even though they're a biological male. That is the world rowing policy as it currently stands. Now, what is the problem with that? Here's the problem. There is no amount or duration of testosterone suppression that erases the male biologic advantage. I'm just going to say it one more time because it is the essence of this issue. There is no amount or duration of testosterone suppression that will erase the male advantage in sports. Furthermore, this policy, 12 months, is a very short amount of time. They may, there's some talk that maybe world rowing is going to edit this policy to say that duration of suppression has to be two years instead of one year. And the level of testosterone suppression has to be lower at 2.5 instead of five. And again, the problem with that, that two years does not erase the male advantage. There's now research that shows even 14 years of testosterone suppression does not erase the male advantage. Furthermore, that level of testosterone suppression is still higher than what is in a healthy, normal female. 
So it's simply fundamentally unfair because it's allowing an individual who's a biological male to compete against biological females and have an unfair physiologic advantage. And we know in rowing, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in every sport. All you have to do is look at at race times. Once you go through puberty as a male, things like height, bone density, heart size, there's locked in advantages that are only marginally affected by testosterone suppression later in life. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, we have long databases to look at because it sounds like men and women have been competing in the 2000 meters, same distance for, for many years. What's a typical time difference between otherwise similarly situated male and female crews over 2000 meters? Jonathan, instead of me giving you some data on international racing times, I'm going to share some data on world indoor rowing ergometer competitions. That's when you go to the gym and you're sitting there and it's basically a big fan. You're you're sitting on the machine and you're on a rowing machine. So I do this at the gym every time I go, by the way, and I'm very pleased with myself because I did 500 meters and 139 the other day, which is like my, my personal best ever. Congratulations. I've been looking for an opportunity to drop that into a podcast and this is the only time I'll ever have. <laughs> well, Jonathan, congratulations. That's <laughs> no, quite good. Anyway, please go on. All right. So if you look at uh, world record erg times, which I think is cleaner. Why? Because you're taking away the influence of rowing technique. You're taking away the influence of the water and the wind and all those other things, right? We see that lightweight men are 14% faster than the best lightweight woman in the world. But even in the open weight category, the fastest man is 12% faster than the fastest woman. 12% is a lot. So the 2000 meter world record for the men open weight is 535.8, five minutes and 35 seconds. The fastest time for the women open weight world record is six minutes and 21 seconds. 2000 meters on an erg, on a rowing machine. That's a huge difference. You cannot put biological men in women's events and expect there to be fairness. It's not possible. I want to make one comment about puberty. Puberty is, yes, that's where there's the explosion of testosterone that really drives the physiologic differences between men and women. However, the sex-based differences actually start in utero. So even in girls and boys pre-puberty, there are physiologic advantages to boys compared to girls. The differences are smaller, clearly smaller than they are after puberty, but there are still differences. Was there any kind of scientific report that accompanied U.S. Rowing's decision? Jonathan, that's an excellent question. And the answer is, to my knowledge, no. I have quietly asked that question. There is a U.S. Rowing Sports Medicine Committee, and I asked if this updated policy was endorsed by the Sports Medicine Committee. These are communications that I've had with individuals. It was that, no, this was not officially reviewed or endorsed by the Sports Medicine Committee of U.S. Rowing. So one could ask, was there a committee at U.S. Rowing that actually created and endorsed and supported this policy? And I cannot find that information. Furthermore, the U.S. Rowing Board of Directors did not actually vote on this updated policy. They 
stated that because there were no significant changes to the update to the original policy, that a formal vote was not needed. Now, I absolutely disagree. I believe that there are fundamental changes that were made to the policy, and I believe that the board did not vote on it because they're trying to avoid individuals having to put their names onto whether they are blatantly discriminating against females in the sport of rowing or not. It's, it, it, this is a failure of leadership. We'll be getting back to the Quillette podcast momentarily, but first, a quick reminder that if you're just listening to Quillette and not reading it, then you're getting an incomplete Quillette experience. Our website, quillette.com, is where free thought lives. This week, you'll find new essays by Jesse Inman on Ukraine, Oliver Trouty on the policing of language, Jeffrey Herf on the legacy of philosopher Martin Heidegger, Iona Italia on Roald Dahl and the ethics of art, and Riley Moore on Aristotle. You'll also find an interview with legendary musician Nick Cave, conducted by my boss, Quillette founder and editor-in-chief Claire Lehman. Plus, a wonderful essay on the strange progressive fixation with Drag Queen Storytime Hour, written by veteran Canadian drag queen Skya Gilbert. All of that at Quillette.com. And now, back to the Quillette podcast. So, failure of leadership, I, I have some sympathy for the people running these boards. Presumably, they're terrified because they have people like you calling them and sending them scientific articles about the reality of biological sex and talking to people like me. On the other hand, if they adopt common sense rules that acknowledge the reality of biological sex, the all-purpose rejoinder is, well, we need to welcome more people in the sport and you're not being inclusive. You must get that all the time. They say, oh, you're not being inclusive. I love rowing. I want everyone to be able to row. I want everyone to be able to compete. The essence of sport is to test yourself, right? It's to push yourself. It's to learn about yourself. It's to to learn how to be on a team and support each other on a team. So you can have fairness and competition by saying that the female category is protected for females, and then there's an open category for everyone else. And that's how a trans athlete could compete. And so everyone can row, everyone can compete, but you cannot blatantly discriminate against females, take away the rights of girls and women to fair competition because there's a group that says, but I want to be this. Okay, I'll give you another analogy. I want to compete as a 70-year-old master's rower. I'm not 70. Why can't I simply self-identify as 70 following this logic and say, no, I'm actually 70. I self-identify as 70. You have to let me compete in the 70-year-old bracket so I can go clean the clock on everybody who's 70 because I'm younger and faster and stronger. We have categories in sports because we need them to create fairness. That's why we have lightweights and open weights. Like me, you're old enough to remember the Seinfeld episode where Kramer dominated the dojo. Remember he enlisted in a karate class, was competing against 10-year-olds? <laughs> yeah. That's... You know what? I'm going to slip in a soundbite of that right now. <laughs> oh, hey. What's he doing? Uh, well, I'm, I'm dominating. <laughs> you never said you were fighting children. Well, it's uh, not the size of the opponent, Elaine. It's... Uh... The ferocity. 
and that was <laughs> that was uh, that wasn't that long ago. That was, I guess, about thirty years ago. Uh, life seems to imitate satire in some of these controversies. But how common is this? Because one common rejoinder is that, you know, yes, these rules are ridiculous, but there's just very few men who are going to take advantage of this because, look, they have self-respect. They've, they're they not going to take a medal away from a girl. Like, ha- has this actually happened? I am under the impression that we have biological males who identify as female that are competing in women's events in indoor rowing and potentially in some of the master's events. I'm also aware of a high school situation. Has it risen to the level where we see higher level records being smashed by the biological male competing as a woman? Not yet, but it will happen. We're trying to avoid this happening in rowing by trying to educate the rowing community as to what the current U.S. rowing policy is, and then mobilize the community to say to the U.S. Rowing Board of Directors, this is not fair, it's not right, and we need you to change the policy. So the equivalent of U.S. rowing and swimming did act to some extent after the Leah Thomas fiasco. These things have to happen sometimes for the sport to be embarrassed and to change. Is that what's going to happen with rowing? Is that it's, it's going to require a circus, you know, some rower or some team of rowers beats another team by a minute or two. There is no reason to believe that that won't happen. It will happen. There will be a 12 to 14% difference. Now, maybe you could argue it would be a little less because that individual was suppressing testosterone for a year. Okay, maybe that would make it a 10% difference. A 10% difference is still kicking somebody's butt. This is science. This is biology. You cannot change sex. People are born as one sex or another. There are very, very rare disorders of sexual development, which I don't think we need to get into, which can be adjudicated separately, okay? But what we're seeing now is this broader social issue of people identifying as a different gender, which, you know, I don't have an issue with in terms of somebody working, they shouldn't be discriminated against in terms of their pay or their employment. Okay. But sports has to be based on fairness and integrity. And this is destroying women's sports. The other issue that I think is really important is privacy and safety. Now we don't see the safety issue in rowing as much as in other sports, because it is not a sport that involves physical contact of one athlete versus another. But the privacy issue is real. So when biological males are given entrance into the all-female locker room, and those girls have to change and shower with that biological male, that is an invasion of the girl's right to privacy. The solution, I've thought about this, is we need the coaches for the men's team and the individuals on the men's team to be more welcoming of that individual. That individual is a biological male. They should be showering and changing in the boys' and men's locker room. And if they identify as a female, oh, that's okay. But if you've got a penis, you should be showering and changing with everyone else that has a penis. If you don't, you shouldn't. One interesting subplot here, which you hit in your Newsweek article, and I thought was very telling, 
is that there seems to be one area of competition where U.S. rowing uh, is quite punctilious about biological sex. I I have to tell you that we're very fortunate that our op-ed was published by Newsweek on February 2nd of 2023. That is my favorite paragraph of the whole piece because it really highlights... So what's that? But you know what? I, I didn't bring you on to be a narrator, but let's have you read that paragraph. In the height of irony... U.S. rowing chose to protect fairness based on sex in only one racing category, mixed events. In these competitions, men and women race together in the same boat. U.S. rowing specified that such boats must be 50% female. This is the only event in which female sex is an eligibility requirement. Without this sex requirement, a mixed boat could be composed entirely of males, some of whom identify as women. Such a boat would possess an unfair advantage over a boat comprised of 50% males and 50% females. Hence, in a move that can certainly be viewed as misogynistic, U.S. rowing defined eligibility based on sex only when not doing so would make competition unfair for males. Yeah, give, give me an example how this would play out. Let's take a mixed eight. That's eight athletes in the boat. In the mixed event, what U.S. rowing is saying, four of those athletes must be male and four of those athletes must be female. And again, this is the only place in the whole policy where there's a requirement based on biological sex for the women. Because if they allowed the application in this category consistent with the rest of the policy, that mixed boat could be four males two biological females, and two biological males who identify as women, competing as women. So that boat is really six males and two females that would be competing against another boat that is four males and four females. And so the boat that has more males in it will have the advantage. And so if they didn't put that in the policy, that would make competition for men unfair. So U.S. rowing has specifically protected the integrity of competition for men and totally trashed it for women. I I can't even understand how they couldn't see the backlash that they would receive and the hypocrisy of this aspect of their policy. These people are smart people on the U.S. rowing board of directors, but yet this is what they did. I, I ask everybody who's fighting this battle, have you lost friendships? or professional affiliations over this? Because they often tell the same story, which is that there are organizations or people who say, look, uh, whatever my private thoughts are are on this, my Facebook group, my organization, my grant giving agency, whatever it is, we've taken the position that trans women are women, and you're off message on this. And I'm I'm sorry, I I just, I have to shut you off. Have you experienced any of that? Yes, to some degree, Jonathan, I'm sorry to say. So there are women that I love, that I respect, former teammates of mine that don't agree with this approach. And their philosophy is there's so few of them, just let them in, just include them. And when I actually brought this up at an event where I was with several of my teammates, I was really disappointed with with that response from so many of them. However, what was very interesting was that afterwards, several of them came up to me individually and said, yes, you're right. 
that's the, that's the right approach. And those that were involved in sports acknowledged that athletes that they had, particularly in contact sports, did not want to be competing against biological males, that they recognized that they had an unfair advantage in competition, and that there was a greater risk of injury to that female athlete, which would take her out of the game. So they were afraid to speak up. It is disheartening. It's wrong. It's It feeds into this whole climate that we have where we are afraid of discourse and discussion because I'm, I welcome it. Like, let's have a conversation about this. Let's figure out a solution. There are other options. But instead, what happens is a personal attack, right? To call somebody a bigot or a transphobe or name calling. If your position is so strong and so right, let's have an honest debate and put the facts out because I am very confident in my facts. Mary O'Connor is a doctor and was a member of the 1980 U.S. Olympic rowing team and chairs the Independent Council on Women's Sports rowing section. Dr. O'Connor, just realizing I should have called you doctor this whole time, thank you so much for joining us. Jonathan, it's been my pleasure, and I would ask everyone to engage. They can go to our ICONS website. That's iconswomen.com. They can join our network. They can sign petitions that we have to support fairness for females in sports. And this is really such an important moment for us, for not just our daughters, but also our sons, because we want to raise our children, understanding that fairness and integrity matter. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts on the Quillette podcast. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 